0: Scripture again is taken from the fifth chapter of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5, we'll look at verses 5 through 11. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through his Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would would uh, would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. and the hearing of his holy word. Today is Reformation Sunday, and we rejoice in that. Uh, in Reformation Sunday, we celebrate the doctrinal disputes that gave birth to what, has, what is called Protestant Christianity. I never will forget a number of years ago on White Horse Inn, we had a guest who was from the Roman Catholic Church just kind of discussing the differences between the two, Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, and he made the interesting observation which none of us could disagree with. And he pointed out that the average American evangelical is closer to the theology of the Roman Catholic Church than they are to the theology of Martin Luther. And we digested that, and we bemoaned the fact not only of how true that is, but how also it is equally true that many people are Protestant only by default. In other words, we are Protestant simply because we're not Catholic. And many are not even not Catholic for the right reason. Therefore, what I want to do this morning in honor of the Protestant Reformation, I want to preach from the book of Romans. The reason for that is because the book of Romans played a significant role in shaping the theological thought of our Protestant forefathers. It was as they poured over the scriptures and camped out in the book of Romans that they were able to come away with clear articulations of various aspects of the Christian faith, particularly the doctrine of justification by grace alone alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is for this reason that the book of Romans has been called the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. And so this morning I want to preach from the book of Romans, but I also have chosen this particular text for two specific reasons. I've chosen this particular text, number one, because it presents both the context and the content of the gospel message in a very clear and concise and condensed manner. The context of the gospel. In other words, if the gospel, the word gospel simply means good news. And if the good news, if the gospel is the good news, the context of the gospel is the corresponding bad news. So this text deals with both the good news and the bad news that the good news is an answer to. But the second reason we've chosen this text is because in this text, the gospel is set forth in a Trinitarian formula. All three persons of the Godhead are presented as playing a significant part of the gospel message, which we will see as we unfold this particular text. So let's let's begin. and There are five basic headings that we'll look at, and here's the first one. The first thing to note as it relates to this passage is how the Apostle Paul describes the fallen human condition. How the Apostle Paul describes the the fall in human condition. Now one of, this is, one of the reasons this is important for distinguishing Catholicism from Protestantism is because both Catholics and Protestants agree with the fall. In other words, we both acknowledge that there was a fall that took place. But, but the, the, the Protest, our Protestant forefathers understood the effects of the fall in a particular way as they re- reasoned from the scriptures. That being the case, Paul in this text describes the fallen human condition along four lines. Along four lines. The first thing that he says, or the first thing that we want to call attention to is not in the order in which it's given, but one way that Paul describes the fallen human condition is in verse 8, where he says that we are sinners. Where we are, he says that we are sinners. That word is, is important. What it means to be a sinner, literally, it means to miss the mark. A sinner is one who misses the mark. And we talk about other terms that is as it relates to sin. But, but sin itself, the word that's translated as sin, simply means to miss the mark. And what we miss, the mark that we miss, is the standard that God calls us to according to his law. It's for this reason that Paul in Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God which is to say that all have sin and the reason what makes them sinners is they fall short of the mark that God has called us to which is the righteousness that he requires in his holy law so the first way that we see that we are described is sinners the fallen human is a sinner he has or he or she has missed the mark But a second way we are described in our fallen condition is seen in verse 6 where we are called ungodly. Those who have missed the mark are ungodly, which is to say that in our fallen state we are inclined away from God and towards self. We are ungodly. That's what we are in our natural fallen state. We are inclined away from God. Which is to say that we are godless. Or one way to put it is we are anti-God. Now a lot of people don't see themselves as being anti-God. They think they are just anti-the God as defined by established religion. Well that itself is anti-God. And so what, what, what Paul says is that in our natural state in verse 8 we are sinners. But in verse 6 we are ungodly. Thirdly, he says that being the case, that, that being the case that we are ungodly, in verse 10, Paul says that the fallen soul is an enemy of God. We are sinners in that we have missed the mark. We are ungodly in that we are inclined away from God and toward self. And therefore, we are enemies of God. Now that alone, by the way, that description of the fallen soul as being an enemy of God is offensive to non-believers because many people think that they're all right with God. And, and I might not go to church, or I might, but I don't, I'm not an enemy of God, but the Bible says we are. So here are three descriptions of our fallen state. We are sinners in that we have missed the mark. We are ungodly in that we are inclined away from God and towards self, and therefore we are enemies of God. There is is enmity between us and God. But fourthly, Paul says in verse 6 that we are weak. We are weak. And that simply is a description of saying or a way of saying that man in his fallen state is unable to change himself. You see, if we are sinners, we have missed the mark. And to say that we are weak is to say there is nothing that we can do or fix ourselves in such a way that will enable us to miss the mark. To say that we are ungodly is to say that we are inclined away from God. But we can, we, if this microphone is inclined over here, then I can incline it towards me. We can't do that. In our natural state, if we are inclined away from God, we don't have the strength to incline ourselves towards him. And if we are, if we are uh, enemies of God, we certainly don't have the ability to remove that enmity. Therefore, Paul says in verse 6, while we were weak, so therefore, Paul's description of the fallen human condition is that we are sinners who have missed the mark, we are ungodly in that we are inclined away from God, we are enemies of God, and we are too weak to fix ourselves. Now that's, that's part of the distinction between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. That fourfold description of man, we descri- Paul describes it elsewhere in Ephesians as being dead in trespasses and sins. That not only distinguishes us from Roman Catholicism, but also from various branches of Christian thought. For instance, in Arminian thought, the idea is that we are weakened. But we can, with strength, we can do more Is or that we are not completely dead or that there is an, a, a slight ability where we can just with the right assistance now move in the right direction or the Pelagian thought. The Pelagian thought, the 5th century British monk who said that Adam's sin only directly affected him and it affected us by way of an example. So therefore, if you follow Adam's example, then you will fall into his state. But we come here perfectly able to do everything that God requires or else he wouldn't require it. But that's not the way Paul describes it. See, Paul describes us as being sinners who have missed the mark, inclined away from the mark, and enemies because we've missed it, and then unable to do anything about it. But that's the first thing. The second thing that we look at, we'll look at, is a consideration of God the Father. God the Father, and there are three things in particular that we will look at what Paul says about God the Father in this particular passage. In the first place, God is the one whose laws that we have transgressed, and therefore it is his wrath that we need to be delivered from. Paul makes this point in verse 9 in particular when he talks about the blood of Christ. He says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And the wrath of God there refers to the God the Father. So therefore God the Father is portrayed here as the one whose law it is that we have transgressed. And because we have transgressed his law, we are therefore under his wrath. And so God the Father is portrayed here as the one whose wrath we need to be delivered from. And he is the one that we need to be reconciled to. Whatever else we need, whatever else the gospel does, the gospel reconciles us to God the Father and removes the wrath of God the Father. There are many in the Christian church and some and many outside of the Christian church that are ashamed of God's wrath. But it's, it's, it's funny, we're not, they're, they're ashamed of God's wrath but not their own. Humans have wrath too. And that's because we are created in the image of God. So our wrath somehow is justified, but the one who is holy of all, the most holy of all, has no room to have wrath. We have anger, but God has wrath. And salvation is a matter of being delivered from his wrath, and it is a matter of being reconciled to him so that his wrath is turned away. It is God the Father. We know that ultimately we are in fellowship with the triune God, but God the Father is the one whose wrath is upon us. Secondly, we see in these verses that if it is the wrath of God the Father from which we have been delivered, it is the love of God the Father that actually triggers our salvation. It is the love of the Father. We speak of the wrath of the Father by which we have been saved, but in verse 8 it makes it clear that it is the love of God that triggers our salvation. Verse 8 says, but God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, brothers and sisters, it's hard for some people to reconcile God as, as having both love and wrath. But it's clear it's part of his character. In fact, we've preached elsewhere concerning the wrath of God. God's wrath is really an expression of his holiness. Because God's wrath, if what he has done is good and what he has required in his law is holy and just, then God's wrath is his righteous response to that which is contrary to what he he intends. And so God's wrath is what we are delivered from but here's the beautiful part of the gospel it is God's love that delivers us from his wrath what is it that we're saved from I remember growing up and I'm not going to blame this on my church it's the other folk I was listening to we were all I was always thinking that we're saved from the devil no we're not saved from the devil We're we're saved from the clutches of the devil, not in the afterlife, but in this life. How many of us grew up thinking that the devil is in charge of hell? So when you say, go to the devil. No, we, devil is not in charge of, in fact, at this point, he ain't in charge of anything but sinners. (laughs) He's not in charge of hell. We are saved from the clutches of Satan in whose, whose manner we walk outside of Christ brothers and sisters, what we're ultimately saved from is the wrath of God. Now granted, he saves us by his love, but we are saved from his wrath. God saves us from himself through the person of his Son. But thirdly, we see that not only is God the Father the one whose wrath that we are saved from, and it is the love of God the Father that triggers our salvation. But thirdly, rejoicing in God the Father is the end or aim of our salvation. In fact, that's a, that's a good description of the Christian life that we are rejoicing in God the Father. Yes, we praise God for Christ, but we, we rejoice in God the Father. Verse 11. Verse 11 says that more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. The 16th century Protestant or Puritan preacher William Perkins expresses it this way. He says, our first and principal joy must be that we are in God's favor, reconciled to God by Christ. All other petty joys flow from this and is, and is suitable to this. And what is this? That we now get to rejoice in God the Father. God the Father whose wrath we were under, whose law we have fallen short of, but whose love has reconciled us to him and has removed his wrath, we are now rejoicing in him. So the end of our salvation is to rejoice in God the Father. Paul in Ephesians 1 says that he has chosen us in him since before the foundation of the world that we might stand before him holy and perfect and in love. And in love with who? In love with God the Father. Well, That brings us to a third thought and that is God the Son. We see God the Father. It is his wrath that we have been delivered from. It is is to him that we have been reconciled to. It is his love that has, has triggered our salvation. And certainly rejoicing in him is the end for which we have been saved. But we also see in this passage emphasis on God the Son. Three things that are seen here. God the Son is the means by which the wrath of the Father has been, as as has been portrayed. It is by the Son that the wrath has been averted. But there are three things that we want to look at. Number one, in verse 11, it portrays the death of Christ as the demonstration of the Father's love to us. Think about that. It is the, 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 how does God the Father show his love to us? He shows, as part of his, uh, the demonstration of his love is in the death of his son on the cross. Again, in verse 11. More than that we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom whom we have received reconciliation. But the reason we have received reconciliation is because it says that in verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of Christ on the cross. So the Father, the love of the Father, that is demonstrated, we are told earlier, that, the lo- that, that God's love for us. In fact, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son, but he didn't just send him into the world, he sent him to the cross. The rationale of the Apostle Paul later in Romans chapter 8 says, if, why, how could he not give us all things? How how can we not expect him to love us if he who has not spared his own son, in other words, that he has offered him up as a living sacrifice as proof of God's love for us? Brothers and sisters, if you want to know if God loves you, don't look at your bank account. If you want to know if God loves you, don't look at all of the obituaries that, of the funerals that you've gone to from loved ones that, you, that you've had in your life. If you want to know about God's love, you discover God's love through the dynamics of his son on the cross. Because there is a, a, there is a direct correlation between the affection of God's love, God's favorable affection towards us, and the wrath that he pours out on on his son on the cross. Proof and demonstration of the Father's love is seen not just in the life, but in the very nature of the death of his son. But God the Son, not only is his death the means By which the love of the Father is communicated to us. In verse nine, it says that we have justification through His blood. Look at verse nine. It says, Since therefore we have now, or since therefore we have now been justified by His blood. Think about that. And again, this is the, the very concept of justification is one of the major differences between Protestants and, Ro- and, and, and Catholics. We have been justified by his blood, by the blood of the Son. We have, we have been declared righteous. In fact, let me just explain. In the doctrine of justification, we maintain that God declares sinners to be righteous, Because he credits them with the righteousness of his son. In Roman Catholicism, the idea of justification is how we can become righteous. But in Protestantism, we say that we become righteous because the righteousness of the son is credited to us. We don't get better. We just get covered. Brothers and sisters, understand that the reason that we have justification, in other words, by justification, that means we have a right legal standing before the Father. And the reason we have a right legal standing before the Father is because of the perfect righteousness that has been offered up to the Father on our behalf. And that's, if if we truly understand that, that ought to humble us. Because if we think that we have a right standing before God because we've earned it, then we will misread a whole plethora of scripture. Brothers and sisters, here's what we are. We are the priests with dirty clothes in the book of Zechariah. We are the woman at the well. We are soiled and stained and yet God gives us the privilege of coming into his presence as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4 that we can boldly go into the throne room of God and we know that our words will be heard not because of our merits but because of our Savior, his Son. We have a legal right standing before God. That nobody can kick us out. We can't be be kicked out. They can kick us out of the synagogues. But they can't kick us out from the throne room of God. Because his son has interceded in our behalf. By his blood we have justification. But thirdly we see also in verse 11. That we rejoice right now with the father. Because of the fact of the son. You see, we don't just rejoice in God, the Father. We don't just, we don't just, we didn't just wake up one morning and all of a sudden fall in love with God. No, he fell in love with us and sent his son. And his son removed the cause of our offense. And his son gave us a right legal standing before the Father. And now we rejoice in the Father. We don't have a Father that we are ashamed of. We can come to him and we rejoice in him. And the reason we rejoice in him is because of the Son. We've quoted before John John Owen's statement that there is an infinite ocean of love that is within the Father, but not one drop of it can reach us except through the Son. The other side of that statement is that there is nothing that is pleasing from us to the Father except through the Son. Brothers and sisters, we can't talk about how much we love the Son without rejoicing in the Father. And we cannot rejoice fully in the Father without rejoicing in what God has given us in the Son. One of the dangerous things that we've seen happening in the evangelical church over the years Is the separation of the Godhead. So that we're all Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And thank God for Jesus, the the Son. And we diminish the work of the Father. But the reason for the Son is so that we could stand before the Father without shame, without guilt, but certainly in love. So therefore, the the, the love of the Father is communicated to us through the Son or demonstrated to us through the Son. Well, that brings me to a fourth thing, and we'll touch on this rather briefly. The work of the Son that reconciles us to the Father is conveyed to us by the Holy Spirit. The work of the Son Who reconciles us to the Father is conveyed and communicated to us by the Holy Spirit. In verse 5 it says that hope does not make us ashamed but the Holy Spirit has been poured profusely into our hearts. And what he's conveyed to us, what he has done, is he has, he has poured to our hearts the love of the Father. The love of the Father which has been received through, the or demonstrated through the work of the Son. The Holy Spirit, in other words, communicates to us God's love to us through the work of the Son. And notice the way Paul ends verse 5. The Holy Spirit has been poured abroad in our hearts um, that is communicated the love of, of the love of the Father has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us and who gave us the Spirit the Father gave us the Spirit to illuminate the work of the Son In other words, again, as we've mentioned, that people have disconnected the work of the Trinity as it relates to our salvation. So some people are all Jesus and no, are all Son and no Father. And others are all Spirit and no Son. Let me just make this absolutely clear. There is no celebration of the Spirit without a clear comprehension of the person of the Son. The purpose of the Spirit is not so we can ooh, ooh, ooh. No, the purpose of the Spirit is so that we can see the Son. And the more we see the Son, the more we can say ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> the purpose of the Spirit is to illuminate the work of the Son. And the work of the Son is to bring praise to the, the glory of the Father. They work together. Father sent his Son to demonstrate his love, and he sent his Spirit to illuminate his Son. And just like we cannot know the Father without the Son, we cannot claim knowledge of the Spirit and be ignorant of the Son. Well, that brings me to a fifth and final thing, and that is some concluding thoughts on what Paul has presented. In these verses, three concluding thoughts. One, the degree to which we rejoice in the Father is proportionate to the degree to which we both rest in and walk in what the Spirit conveys about Christ. The degree to which we rejoice in the Father is proportionate to the degree to which we both rest in and walk in what the Spirit conveys about Christ. In other words, brothers and sisters, as we we rejoice in the Father, rejoicing in the Father is because we rest in the Son. And resting in the Son is the impetus for us to walk in the Spirit. And so we cannot disconnect What the Spirit illuminates about the Son, which connects us to the grace of the Father. So to whatever degree we might be rejoicing about a lot of things, but to really rejoice in the Father is to take delight in what the Son has given and to walk in that. That's what Paul is saying in Ephesians, walk as dear children in light. As the children of God, as you have been transferred into the kingdom of his dear Son, walk in that. And we cannot know that we are in the Son if we don't have it illuminated to us by the Spirit. The degree to which we rejoice in the Father is proportionate to the degree to which we both rest and walk in what the Spirit conveys about Christ. Second concluding thought is this. Just as the love of the Father is manifest in the death of Christ, so love for the Father from us is manifest in our clinging to and our reasoning from the cross of Christ. In other words, the cross of Christ is the means by which the love of the Father is demonstrated to us and the degree to which we we love the Father, it, is, it, it corresponds to our clinging to the cross. And not just clinging to it, but reasoning from the cross. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, right around the end of his his. his uh, his letter, and he's said a great deal about God's grace in Christ, and he has this final thought concerning the cross of Christ. And he says this, and we'll look at verse, um, we'll, we'll, we'll look at, at verse, let's see, or excuse me, chapter, yeah, e- Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll look at, uh, let's see, let's jump down to, we'll look at uh, beginning in verse, let's begin in verse uh, 14 or 12. Let's begin in verse 12 um, or, or beginning in, in verse, in, in verse uh, 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and take and, and, and praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to this end that keep and uh, to uh, to that end keep alert with all perseverance making supplications for all the saints and as for me that God's words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador and the message of the gospel is anchored in the cross of Christ. And it's for this reason, not only that, that is the sword of the spirit. In other words, the spirit is the weapon that we use, as, or the spirit illumines the word of God so that we are able to bring into submission anything that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 10. But, but here's what we want to close with in this thought, is in Gal- Galatians, Galatians, where Paul, again, at the end of the letter here, and he talks about the cross of Christ. So it is the spirit through prayer and through supplication that enlarges the work of Christ on the cross, and it is through the spirit that we have a right view of the cross, and as we cling to the cross, then we demonstrate our love towards God. In Galatians, the final chapter again, chapter 6, And he says this, um, we'll begin in verse 9 or verse 6. Let no one who is taught the word, uh, or let the one who is taught the word share, or excuse me, I want to jump down to verse 11. Uh, So you see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh. Who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And here is where the illuminating work of the Spirit through prayer and through the word enables us to have a right grasp of the cross of Christ. So, therefore, Paul says this. He says, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in the flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom or by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Brothers and sisters, the cross demonstrates God's love for us and our love for him is demonstrated in our clinging to the cross which is manifest by the spirit through the word and therefore our petitions are to him through the knowledge of the cross. So by the cross we are crucified to the world and the world is crucified to us. But here's a third and final concluding thought. The wonder of grace and the motive for godliness is the fact of what we were by nature and now the fact of what we are by grace. The wonder of grace and the motive for godliness is the fact of what we were by nature. And what were we by nature? We've already seen the four things. We were sinners. We were ungodly. We were enemies. And we were weakened to the point that we could not change it. That's what we were by nature. But what are we by grace? Reconciled to God. Children of the Most High God. Heirs with Christ or heirs of God, and even joint heirs with Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's what causes us to love when, we, when it's hard to love. That's, what it, that's, the, that's the engine that drives us. That is what keeps us worshiping God in all seasons and in all circumstances. The wonder of what we were and the splendor of what we are. Brothers and sisters, we don't Serve God so that we worship and rejoice in God because of. And it's because we who were enemies are now seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's because the wrath that was upon us has been averted. And our walk in holiness, our, our efforts to love the unloving, the, our efforts to forgive as we've been forgiven, the reason we worship him, the reason we send up our praises is because we think really about what we were and now what we are. There's a street in Los Angeles, 54th Street, and at a certain place, it's 54th Street, is a two lane highway. It's it's just a residential street. And it's it's about from one stretch I was driving at one stretch about a mile and a half. And down 54th Street there's a bus, the number 8 bus or num- yeah, number 8 or 54 bus that that goes down 54th Street. And one day I was headed to my father's seafood restaurant on 54th Street and I was behind the bus. But I wanted to get past it. I was young and impetuous. I didn't want to wait. And, and I was, you know, was not like there were any bus stops on the way. So I, I just decided I looked and it was a broken line so I could pass that bus. And, and so I looked over and I didn't see any cars coming. So I get over to pass the bus and lo and behold, about midways from the bus, here comes a car heading in the other direction. And all I could do was, it was one of two things, you had to act quick. Because if I slowed down to to now get behind the bus again, I was certainly going to be hit. But if I sped up, it was going to be a close call. So I decided to speed up and jump over in front of the bus, just in front of the oncoming car. It was so close that our rear view mirrors clicked. That's how close it was. And I finished driving, my cousin was in the car with me and he looked at me like, wow, you know, and I'm all smiling. Yeah, I did this, this is what I do. (laughs) And when I got to the drive to the parking lot of my father's restaurant, I turned off the engine and my hands shook so bad because it dawned on me what I'd been saved from. How close I came to not making it. My cousin got ready. He was all teasing. And when he saw what had come over me, he got silent because we realized something disastrous had just passed. Brothers and sisters, my concern with Christian life light is that oftentimes we gather in God's name and we gather in his presence without any real sense of the wrath that has been averted. And we sit in God's pews and hold back love that we have experienced. Because somehow we have lost wonder. And we have lost the ability to rejoice in him. Isn't that what Jesus says about the older son? And the celebration is going on for the prodigal who's return. Too many of us are like that older son. We're we're stuck, we're stuck on stuff. And we don't come into his presence with an immediate sense of awe that he has loved someone like us. I think sometimes we need to pause in his presence. And remember the one that has been given the privilege of his name in prayer is one who had missed the mark. And the penalty for missing the mark is to be under his wrath. But in his love, he has removed his wrath. And by the blood of his son, He's reconciled you to himself and when we didn't have the ability to reach up to receive that wonderful grace he poured his spirit in our hearts to tell us his good news through his son and he gave us ears to hear and a heart to respond to that truth we rejoice in God the Father through the wounds of God the Son that has been amplified by God the Spirit because we are now children of God. Amen.